Father, it is an incredible privilege we have to come to sing the praises of Him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb who overcame, to the Lion of Judah, to the One who conquered sin, death, and hell and rose from the grave victorious so that we can have forgiveness and grace and mercy in His name. Jesus, we love You. We worship You, our God. And we pray as we continue our study, as we continue to sing and read Scripture, hear from Your Word, Lord, more of You, less of us, that we may exalt the King of kings. And His name is Jesus. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. In a new series this morning, we've already gone through Acts. That was a joke. We're not done. That's the book of Acts. That's where we're going. Hope you followed it along. We'll dismiss the kids. Let's dismiss the kids if we could. I wanted them to see the video. I thought they'd get a chuckle too, you know what I mean? Funny, funny video. That is the whole book of Acts, but we are going through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. going to take us a little bit longer than three minutes, possibly three years, but we're calling it Spirit-Empowered Mission. And uh, we already began last week, as Pastor Nathan had mentioned, and uh, I've already gotten some phone calls. There's some live debate going on, lively debate going on uh, in our community groups. And if you're new here, we like to go through books of the Bible, verse by verse, uh, Sunday morning, and then we break out throughout the Capital District in smaller groups, 8, 14, um, and we discuss the topic, we dive into it, we live life together, we um, look for ways to apply the truth of God's Word to our lives while we seek to live on mission with Jesus. Um, that's really what this whole book is about, particularly the book of Acts as well. We'll see clearly how God the Father sent God the Son into a broken world to die on a Roman cross, to rise from the grave, and then God the Father and God the Son sends the Holy Spirit into the world, convicting us of our sins, opening our hearts to believe, and then sending us, the people of God, in His power to, to demonstrate and to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the nations, to every tongue, every tribe, every culture, every nation. There's no lone ranger in, in the gospel, in the community of God's people, and that's clear in the Scriptures God calls us in, God sends us out. That's the way it works. And um, I want to bring everybody up to speed. If you weren't here last week, just spend a couple of minutes in the beginning of Book of Acts because it's really important that you know that the Book of Acts is Volume 2 of one book. Volume 2 of one book. The first volume is the Gospel according to Luke. Luke is a doctor, a physician. Paul calls him the beloved physician. And he wrote both books. He wrote the Gospel of Luke and he wrote the Book of Acts written by him. In fact, Luke chapter 1 tells us that he carefully investigated and wrote down all that took place. You have this, this doctor of high intellect, of, of, of an educational background, wrote down and all that took place in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus for a man that he calls Theophilus. Theophilus is his name. And Theophilus now has an accurate account, an orderly narrative of all that took place due to the investigative detail and research and eyewitness testimony of Luke, who is also guided by the Holy Spirit. And what we have in Acts and Luke is the sovereign work of God, taking the, the, the experiences and the character of a man to give us his infallible word. 
It's interesting, I think, that God chooses a doctor to do this. Someone who is probably good at, you know, um, learning the facts, studying data, uh, compiling information, and then bringing all that together in a message to His people. Theophilus is called the lover of God. That's, that's what his name means, lover of God. And he's probably either a new convert or maybe somebody who's just interested in the things of God. Luke makes it clear that he wrote the Gospel according to Luke to tell us all that Jesus began to do or all that Jesus did and taught us until the day He was crucified, rose from the grave, and ascended to heaven. That's volume 1. Volume 2, the book of Acts, is the account of all that Jesus continues to do, continues to teach through His apostles and through the church and the power of His Spirit. So it's the clear implication is that Jesus is not dead. He's alive. He's not missing. He's not absent. But He is present among His church. And the book of Acts is a book about mission. It's the acts of the living, risen, king, reigning, ruling Jesus. And all that He's doing. Luke ends with the Great Commission. Gospel of Luke. And Acts opens up with the promise. Verse 8, chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, open them to Acts chapter 1. Begins with the promise, but you will receive power, Luke says. When the Holy Spirit, well, Jesus said it, Luke records, will receive when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Notice the context if your Bible's open, Acts 1. He says in verse 4, wait for the power. And then in, in, in verse 8, He says, wait in verse 4, and in verse 8 he says, there's a power going to come upon you. And in between verse 4 and verse 8, the disciples and the apostles say, Lord, when is this coming kingdom? When is the kingdom of Israel, verse 7, coming? When is it going to be restored? They're looking for ethnic kingdom of Israel, the ruling reign of God on earth at that time. And Jesus is like, look, you're going to get power, but, but it's not the power you're looking for. See, the power they were looking for was the power to take over the government, the power to sit then and there on the earthly thrones. That was the power they were looking for. And Jesus redirects them and says, No, remember, I'm the king of the universe. I didn't go to an earthly throne. I went to a wooden cross. And now, dear disciples, he says, Get your eyes off the world. Because when the power comes, the witness is not going to be just the power to sit on a throne. We'll talk about that in a minute. But you're going to receive power to be a witness of me and that truth. I'm a king who went to the cross, who rose from the grave. The word witness is the word we get from martyr. Is the word we get martyr. It's used over 35 times. It speaks about people who see and, and, and hear and are part of something and then declaring that to other people, giving testimony to that truth. It's not heresy uh, or hearsay or rumor but good, or good advice. And what they were told to be witnesses of the historical fact that Jesus really lived. Jesus died. Jesus rose. Jesus exalted. And those who call upon Him will have forgiveness of sins. That's the good news. That's the witness that they were supposed to declare. They wanted power for different reasons. And sometimes, I, I, I think I mentioned this last week, but God does not abandon us. I want to make this a little bit more, I want to push this point a little bit. God does not abandon us when we struggle and need strength. God gives us the power to get through difficult times 
But the power He gives us is not the means to the end. The power He gives us through the Holy Spirit is not the means to the end. God's glory is. The greatest display of the glory of God is Jesus and the Gospel. The, the infinite value, the, the immeasurable worth of God is seen, is, is treasured and enjoyed through the Gospel. And we get to be His witnesses declaring the truth of the Gospel, the reconciling work of God, the forgiveness of our sins in every aspect of our lives. And what I'm saying is, even the good, the bad, and the ugly, God wants to take your brokenness. God wants to take the hurts in your life. God wants to take the joys of your life and point it and use it for His glory. To show the world of His infinite, immeasurable worth and value. That God is enough. And we're going to see this, this power next week, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, in greater detail next week. And we'll ask questions about that. And I don't want to get into that right now. We'll look at Acts chapter 2 with the Pentecost. You know, is that to be experienced? Is it normative? Is it something that all of us should experience? Is it a one-time event? What's going on? We'll look at that. But what you find in Acts, though, is the waiting disciples. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit. How are we... How many of you have that wonderful gift of patience? I'm a doer. I like lists. I like cross things off. That's like a spiritual nice way of saying I'm not very patient. Really, that's really what it means. I'm learning. I'm growing. I'm repenting. You know there's a problem that when you have a secretary at the church working, Annis, when she was here before she moved to Florida, told my wife how wonderful it was to work here at the church, with your husband, she said. He's so patient. <laughs> my wife started to laugh. My kids who heard it were like, they got a new pastor here, his name is Lou. Which guy are you talking about? None of us really like to be patient, waiting on God. Maybe somebody here does. But most of us don't like to really wait. Now, there's a difference between waiting on God and laziness. Okay? So if you're here and you're like, you know, whoever said that is a doer kind of guy like me, okay? Uh, you don't get, you don't want to get, I don't want to get confused. And here are the ways that you can know if laziness might be a problem, okay? Number one, laziness might be a problem if the farther away the remote is, the more you like what's on television. <laughs> there may be a problem, number two, if you spill water and you think to yourself, it'll dry up eventually. Number three, there could be a problem with laziness if, if you always wait till your cell phone is like down to minus two, red light shining to plug it in. There could be a problem is if you do a Google search and if it don't come up on the first page, it doesn't exist. Or you could be, you could have a problem with laziness if you're thinking, you know what, I'm just going to go back to bed anyway later on tonight, why make it? But my favorite is that you might have a problem with laziness. Some of you are going to get this. Maybe some of you won't. But when that ice cube falls on the floor and you kick it underneath the refrigerator. <laughs> waiting on the by, waiting according to the Bible is not laziness, it's activity. It's actively waiting. 
What were the disciples doing during those ten days? Jesus walked with them for 40 days, ten days until the Pentecost, Pentecost 50, and what were they doing between the ascension and the coming of the Spirit of Pentecost? That's our study today. And what we'll find during the ten days, the waiting period, is that the disciples were, were, were called upon by God to accomplish several things. And what I want to do is look at three things that they were doing through the lenses of community. Okay? Because that's what we'll see. We'll see that they were worshiping in community, they were walking in community, and they worked things out in community. Turn to Luke chapter 24. And he said to them, Thus it is written, Jesus speaking, verse 46, that the Christ should suffer and the third days rise from the dead. That's what they're going to be witness of. And that the repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in home, Jerusalem. You, verse 48, are witnesses of these things. You know it. You saw it. You were there. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. The Holy Spirit. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Then Jesus, verse 50, led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with what? Great joy. And were continually in the temple blessing God. Now that may not seem like a big deal, but think for a minute. Jesus claimed to be God, walked around three years ministering and teaching, was crucified, dies on a cross, not mostly dead, but totally dead. They scatter during those three days like mice, scared to death, and rises from the dead, and then some people even then have trouble believing. And yet those who believe, they were eating with Jesus, they were ministering to Jesus, they've come to believe in Jesus. Forty days, and... Bam! He's gone again. He ascends. They don't go run and hide again. They didn't redo what they did three days while Jesus was in the grave and run and lock the doors. It says they worship. They with great joy in the temple as a community. Luke will tell us in Acts 1 that they met in this upper room, gathered together. The upper room was probably a second or a third story uh, place in like a large Palestinian home with ladder steps going up and they used to rent the places out. Students used to go there. The poor used to go there. And it was big enough for 120 people to fit. So if you put that together, there was a larger community. They were worshiping with great joy in the temple and they were meeting in smaller contexts in a room or an upper room on the top of a roof. Worshipping and blessing God in the temple and gathering in smaller communities. And here's the principle I want you to take from that. When you're not sure what the future holds, when, when things maybe don't work out as you think they are going to, or that you're really uncertain about, there's a burden maybe, you know, no matter how intense it may be, inactivity is your enemy. Inactivity is your enemy. The natural response for us when trouble comes and uncertainty and ambiguity is to freeze up and become more and more uninvolved with things like daily devotion, with Sunday morning gathering of worship, gathering in community groups, working things out with people who who hold you accountable. 
the disciples were waiting. Yes, they heard the command of Jesus. Go to Jerusalem. They were where they were supposed to be. Do you think anyone, do you think any one of the people who've heard this and who gathered at any moment during this time thought for a minute, like, I don't really know what's going to happen. How long are we going to be? I'm sure that that came through their minds. Do you think they were a little fearful? The man that they worship and love was crucified. Jesus says, carry on my ministry. Carry your own cross. Follow me. Do as I do. Do you think for a minute they're thinking it'll probably end up the same way? I I would say that would be a logical conclusion. So what did they do? They worshiped together. They not only knew that that's what they were commanded to do, they recognized that that's what they get to. Great joy, not great burden. With great joy, worship together. Now, I realize that all of life is an act of worship, but what we see here is a concerted, collaborated effort of the people of God gathering together on purpose, intently, to to worship, to praise, to hear the Word of God preached. Sometimes we have times in our lives that we're hard to deal with, hard stuff to walk through. We want something to happen. We don't like to wait. Or if we're honest, where are you, Lord? Where are you? Something must be wrong. I must be doing something wrong. That's not always the case. The period of waiting is not a period of total inactivity. It was a period of preparation. God wanted them to wait because He was preparing them. God is doing things in our lives that we cannot see. Sometimes we're unaware of what's going on. Perhaps God is training you, teaching you something about your character. This morning text shows us that the early Christians were practicing obedience. In the midst of waiting, they were fellowshipping and praying, studying Scripture, as we'll see, choosing leaders in preparation for the future. When time gets tough, when we're uncertain, when there are difficulties in our lives, Those are the things that we should be doing. In the context of suffering, Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Don't fly off. Don't make bad decisions. Don't wait on God and then decide to take matters into your own hands. He says, be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Christ Jesus is revealed. Have eternity as your backdrop. God used these waiting periods of our lives as we worship Him to help us focus on Him, His glory, His honor, His praise. What do you do when God has us waiting? The disciples could have said, all right, Jesus is gone, we have ten days. Well, I didn't even know, I don't think at the time, but you know what? Let's go back and do our thing. Let's go back to the fishing boats. Let's go back to being the tax collector. Let's go on with life as if nothing has happened. And it's like, no, let's gather together. Let's live life together. Sometimes we get stuck. And we have to learn that valuable lesson. Don't stop gathering together in corporate worship, community groups, living life together. Two frogs fell into a can of cream, or so I've heard it told. The sides of the can were shiny and steep. The cream was deep and cold. Oh, what's the use, croak number one? Tis faith, no help around. Goodbye, my friend. Goodbye, sad world. And weeping still he drowned. 
But number two of sterner stuff, dog paddled in surprise. The while he wiped his creamy face and dried his creamy eyes, I'll swim for at least a while, he said. It wouldn't really help the world if one more frog was dead. One hour or two he kicked and swam, not once he stopped to mutter, but kicked and kicked and swam and swam and kicked and hopped out via butter. He, <laughs> prepare our minds for action. We're continually doing what we know we should do. We've got to resist the temptation of isolation and worship the Lord together. That's, that's the point. Okay, next they walked in the community. Verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem. This is Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Sorry. Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, about a Sabbath journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James, Andrew, Philip, the apostles, uh, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. Verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brother. Notice the picture. Sabbath day journey, walking together. My wife and I like to take walks together. She's probably thinking right now, we don't do enough. I agree. But we like to walk together. Time of sharing, a time of conversing. It may not be as as as... Intimate as sharing a meal together when you have community, but walking together is a picture of that community, of that sweet communion. What Luke is pointing to is what the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus Christ does with a bunch of diverse people. It brings unity. Walking together, which is one of the major marks of the Christians of the early church. It's amazing. You have 11 apostles, some strong-willed men who are arguing over who will be, you know, have the best seat in the kingdom. There was Jesus' brother who was tenacious about rejecting his messiahship early on. His mother, his uh, other women. Very diverse group. It says that they were in one accord. They were walking together in unity in one accord. Homo the madan, meaning homos one and the same, and then thumos means uh, temperament, passionate mind together. It implies a, an outward togetherness because of an inward motivation. It's actually used of a mob sometimes who are angry and are all coming together in one kind of, you know, horrific tearing up, you know, going after somebody. Here, of course, it's not. Negative, it's positive. Why? Because they were walking together. Because there was one purpose in mind. To carry out the will and the mission of Jesus. A couple of years ago, we studied the book of 1 Corinthians. It was a small little church, jacked up church, that was planted by the Apostle Paul. You remember that. And in the church, and in the, in the, in the letter that Paul writes to the church, he, he deals with several issues, if you remember. They were, they were abusing spiritual gifts. They were drunk at communion. Some dude was, was kissing and having sexual relations with his stepmom, as gross as that is. They're leading people to worship idols. They were suing each other. They were denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lots of problems. Right? And you hear everybody say, let's go back to the first century church. Like, not that one. Okay? Because I'm not kissing my stepmom. I don't care what it says. All right? Anyway, if you remember, what was the first issue that Peter dealt with in 1 Corinthians? With all those issues going on, what was the first issue? Unity. Unity. He spends, I think, three or four chapters talking about unity in the church. Because divisions and factions are serious. 
And what we find in the Bible, what we find in Scripture, is that the church, now listen carefully, the church doesn't define unity. It doesn't create it. It doesn't produce it. The church joins it. His name is Jesus. It's His purpose and His mission. Unity begins with the perfect union of God, Father, and Son. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, I should say. We don't just say, let's work for unity. What we say is, let's all gather around Jesus. That then, the byproduct of that will be unity. Because if Jesus is at the center and we gather around Him, we have unity around Him. Even if it's something of of a good uh, cause, if that becomes a center, it's not Jesus. If some fad or some ministry model becomes a center, it's not Jesus. You still don't have unity. You put Jesus in the center, all that He is doing, then you have unity and everything will flow out of that. That's why we hold on so tightly around here about our core values and the mission statement that God's on mission. We're joining Him for His glory by making disciples, gospel-centered worship, transformation community, we gather around the things that God has gathered, that God that 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 comes and flows from Jesus. Have you ever witnessed? I read this uh, today. I've witnessed it before, but I never really put two and two together. You ever witness a crop, or you ever drive by a field and you see a full crop? I think you would call it a crop. You farmers can correct me. I wouldn't know uh, of of sunflowers. Okay. What's very cool about it is that when the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, so does the direction of the sunflower. It's called heliotropism. Okay? So, so some of you think I wasn't studying this week. I did, because I wouldn't have known that. Earning my key. Actually, David Henke, he's a university professor of uh, Cambridge, he said this. He said, there's kind of a driver in them, which is growth. If you look at a sunflower, there's a narrow neck, which is growing, where most of the cell expansion takes place. In the morning, most of the growth is on the west side of the stem, so the flower tilts to the east. Later in the day, you get stronger and faster growth on the north side, so the flower becomes tilted and so on until the evening when it faces the west. At night, the growth is corrected and you have a great deal of growth on the west side, so at the beginning of the day, it's facing east again. The pattern, he writes, is probably driven by some kind of internal clock which is set by the transition at the end of the day from light to dark, which then starts the whole process of west side growth in the flower. He says their unity, their moving from east to west together is totally dependent on one thing. Their relationship to the sun. S-U-N. Isn't that cool? So true with us. It's about our relationship to the sun. S-O-N. They walked together in unity and they were devoting themselves to prayer. Look at verse 14 again. All of these were at one accord with devoting themselves to prayer. Together with the women, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So this divine promise did not stop them from praying. I want you to notice that. This divine promise stimulated prayer. Warren Worsby writes in his commentary that in almost every chapter in Acts you find a reference to prayer. And the book makes it very clear that something happens when God's people pray. One other commentator when I read this week said uh, prayer is mentioned 31 times in Acts, and in 20 of 28 chapters, something in Acts is mentioned, but something about prayers mentioned in Acts. Praying together, praying together is one of the ways that we maintain our unity. Seeking the will of God. Seeking Jesus' will for us. When God's going to do great things, 
Many times He puts it in the hearts of His people so that they pray. Gathering in community. Are you praying for one another? We have that table where we're praying for one another. It's such a joy that all the pastors and leaders of the church find it such a joy that so many people are praying for one another. Some will say, well, if God's going to do something, He is sovereign. I hear this all the time. Well, He'll accomplish things that He wants to do. Why pray at all? If He's going to do it anyway. If Jesus said, go and wait, and I will promise you, I will send you the Holy Spirit, why do you find the disciples then praying for that end? Well, that's a false understanding of how God works. I want to challenge that understanding. It is true, God is sovereign. God does what God wills to do. God accomplishes His purpose. No matter how disobedient we are, it doesn't frustrate and thwart the plans that God has set from all eternity. But when God accomplishes His purpose, it has a means. It has a means. If He's going to bring someone to faith, He does it by leading someone else to tell them about the Gospel. To speak to them about Jesus. Prayer is not superfluous. It's not unnecessary or needless. And the disciples knew this. And they're praying. Even though Jesus promised they're praying just like He taught them to do. Prayer is, is, is a sense of not only unity, but dependency upon God. It declares that this is not my mission. This is not about me. This is about where you want me, your power in me. Where do you want me to go? They walked together because they believed and trusted that God... Jesus was going to give His promise and they were going to receive power. It was expected. It was expected prayer. They didn't waver. They worshipped and they prayed. Look at, look at this unity in this picture here again. Peter's there. He disowned the Lord. Turned his back on Jesus. His own brothers and his mothers are there. Do you know that in Mark chapter 3, when Jesus was teaching, his mothers and brothers, it says, came to Him to seize Him. For they were saying, who? His brothers, his mother, was saying he's out of his mind. Now you have unity in the church. They're praying together. And who? prayer is an act of worship. And who's doing it? The disciples who ran. The disciples who disowned him. His mother who thought he was crazy. His brothers who didn't want nothing to do with him. And you have all these people together devoting themselves to worship, to prayer. Devout Jewish people who said the Shema every day, several times a day, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Monotheistic Judaism are worshiping Jesus. They knew if it was wrong, hell is where they're going. And here we see them gathered together, convinced, convinced that worshiping Jesus, the, 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 the son, the big brother, but... He's Creator, Lord, and sinless Savior. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the King. Now, I don't know about you, but I could not get my family to worship me. Some of you saw my Facebook post this week with, with the wooden spoon. Some of you commented on it. The Italians, to, to everybody else, you know, it's something you cook with. To an Italian, it's, it's mom's stick. You know what I mean? You know, my, I, I've got the wooden spoon from time to time. I'm not the sinless Savior. My mom knows that, right? I've unfortunately had some fistfights with my, with my brothers. I mean, they know it too. Here we see them worshiping and praying. What? Why? How? We don't know when, but I'll tell you why. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. When Jesus rose from the grave, they're like, dang, snap. He really is God. Like, 
Oh my, he conquered sin. He conquered death. He rose from the grave. All their doubts and, you know, were just out the window. They saw Jesus risen from the grave. Jesus' brother becomes, both his brothers become leaders in the church. One in Jerusalem writes a book of the Bible. Another one writes a book of the Bible. The part of the early church worshiping. Right? So waiting on God is not simply just waiting. It's, it's worshiping. It's, it's praying. It's walking together in community. And here's just a spoiler alert. Don't get ahead of God. Abraham got ahead of God. There's a promise coming. Great. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Now action. No, no, wait. You're going to have a son. You're going to have a son. Sarah, your wife, not the slave girl, the concubine, your wife will have a son. He will be in the line of the promised Messiah. Abraham didn't wait. The whole Arab nation is born. Wait. He says, wait. Now, our next section of scriptures, we look through 15 through 26. Some people think that the disciples didn't wait. That they took matters into their own hands. I don't think that's the case. Look with me in our final point. They work things out together. We're going to look at this on the four headings quickly. So if you're taking notes, some of you do. We'll see this whole transition through scripture. Suicide. Suitability and the selection of the apostles, okay? Scripture, the suicide of Judas, the suitability of the other uh, the apostle, and the selection. Okay? That's what we're looking at quickly together. Look at verse 15. What does it begin with? In those days. It's a transition taking place. The time of the ten days, the time of waiting, the time of praying, the time of coming together in community prompted them to deal with one issue that still needed to be dealt with, and that is the reformation of the twelfth apostle. Judas chose to defect, to, to walk away. And the first thing you notice in this passage is Peter taking leadership and leading by quoting Scripture. I love it. Verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in about 120 and said, Brothers, the Scriptures had to be fulfilled. The Scriptures had to be fulfilled with the Holy Spirit, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Verse 17. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in his ministry. Peter stands up, opens Scripture, and says that it had to be fulfilled. Had to be is a strong Greek word. Day, it means that there was a necessity, that it was absolutely going to happen. And Peter here is recognizing that the betrayal of of Judas uh, had already been fulfilled, but was part of the sovereign plan and purposes of God. Had to be fulfilled. It wasn't an accident. It was ordained by God. He did not catch God off like, oh my word, what is Judas doing to my son? It didn't work that way. Scriptures had to be fulfilled. The term brothers, very important too, you can underline it. It is a, a, a gender neuter, it's, it's not male or female, it's a word in the Greek that really speaking to everyone, sort of like you guys, you know, you ever write an email and it's husband and wife, something right, you guys. That's important because you see the women gathering together. We don't know the exact role they played, but we know that there's an important part. And, and you see in the beginning of the church that our women are going to play in, in the share of the ministry that is about to take place. But the vacancy here is for Judas. Judas rebelled. Not because Judas died are they replacing Judas. That's important. File that. We'll talk about it next week. Because other apostles have been dead. 
Acts chapter 12 speaks of another apostle who died. And they didn't replace him. They replaced Judas only because he defected. He turned. He rebelled. That's why he needed a replacement. There's no succession of apostles. There's not one after the other after the other with that kind of authority. Okay? We'll, we'll talk about this some other time. But notice what, what, notice what Peter says before we move on. Peter believed David spoke how? According to or by the mouth of David concerning Judas was with the Holy Spirit. Look what it says. The Scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. David spoke, moved by the Holy Spirit, and now we have Scripture. The Holy Word of God. That's what he's saying. The high value of Scripture in the life of Peter and his disciples. Peter obviously says, you know what? He was with us. He's not with us anymore. Someone shared in our ministry. He chose 12. We only have 11. So Peter feels like he's in a dilemma. I think Peter was listening on the night before Jesus died. You know what Jesus told Peter? Jesus said to Peter, they were bickering and fighting back and forth. So typical. He says to Peter, I, to the disciples, to the apostles, I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom. There'll be a kingdom which you will lead. Verse 30, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Peter hears that from the Lord. Twelve tribes, twelve apostles were going to be judging and then all of a sudden Judas is no more. So Peter, according to Scripture and according to the fulfillment of Scripture and the need to have twelve, says we need to have somebody. According to Scripture, there should be twelve of us. And he quotes two verses um, one is in Psalm 69. He's quotes in verse 20. I think I have verse 20 up too. Let me see. Yeah. Verse 20. He quotes a uh, great, great psalm, by the way. God is talking about unrighteous enemies of God, people who will be judged. And Peter says, you know what? That's, that's, that's Judas. Judas is among those who will be judged. May their camp be a desolate. Let no one dwell in their tents. Judas was judged. He's been removed. He's an enemy of God. He'll be, uh, you know, he's done. He's judged. Psalm 109 is the second one. And he says very clearly, if you see that, let another take his office. So get this. As we move on from Scripture, we'll look at suicide. Peter understood Jesus that there needs to be 12. And according to Scripture, what took place took place. And according to Scripture, we need to have a 12th person. That's what Peter's saying, according to the Scripture. Why? Because Scripture guides their decisions. Scripture guides their decisions. Number two, suicide, verse 18. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, Judas. And falling headlong, he burst into, burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. Everybody together? Ew! And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. Now, now suicide is never, ever, ever pretty. Studying this week, just dealing with this, deeply hurting people, deeply troubled people hurt themselves. Senseless and selfish act. Judas was a traitor, yes, but he's also created in the Imago Dei, the image and likeness of God. And even though it was according to the eternal plans and purpose of God, my Bible also says in Ezekiel that the Lord does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would turn from their ways and live. 
It's a sad account. I think sometimes evangelicals look at that, yeah, he got what he wanted, you know, he got what he deserved. I don't know. I mean, he got, he got what he got, as I'm saying, as a fellow human broken sinner. I don't know. Sad. It's sad. And the account Peter describes for us here, the purchasing of the land, the purchasing of the land, the events that took place. Some people look at Matthew and say, Matthew gives us an account of Judas. Peter does here in the Gospel, in, in Acts, and they seem to be different. One says that Judas bought the field. The other one says that the chief priest bought the fields. Well, both is true. It was his money that Judas threw at the temple that they bought the field. So it really was his money that they bought it with. Some people say, well, it says in Luke, it says in the Gospel that he hung himself. And here it says that he fell headlong. What's true? Both are true. It's complementary. He was hanging from a tree, maybe from a rooftop, wherever it was, fell, burst open, and, and, and put them all together. And you have a complete picture. That's what uh, Luke is doing for us in Acts as he describes for us the things that Peter is teaching us. So they're both true. One commentator, Derek Bach, he says this, The image is vivid and graphic, intended not only to describe, but also to leave an emotive impression on readers to prevent their following Judas's negative example of unfaithfulness and betrayal. I would say that would, right? It ruins lunch too, but not good. So they need to replace Judas. So the next is suitability. Verse 18, 21. Look at verse 21 with me. So one of the men who have accompanied us, looking for a, a replacement, one of them has to be accompanying us during the time that the Lord went out in and among us, ministered among us, beginning from his baptism of John, the beginning of his ministry, until the day, three years later, he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to what? His resurrection. Starting with the baptism ending with his resurrection and his ascension. That is the one who will replace Judas. Are there any of those here today, this morning? Not unless you're 2,000 years old. Okay? Now here's the deal. In the Gospel, Jesus takes a whole bunch of people and picks 12. The Bible says he made them apostles. Poema, meaning he created, like an artist creates a painting, and he names them apostles. The word apostles, apostello, means sent ones. And in Jesus' day, this wasn't anything new. In Jesus' day, there was what they call a salea, or or, uh, I'll get it, shalia, in Jesus' day, when the Sanhedrin, the Jewish people, had this reigning body in the temple of 70 men, and they had their own apostles. Someone would go out in their authority. If there was a problem in the region, the Shalea from the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of Israel, would send this apostle out with their authority, under their guidance, with their power, to go correct the problem. That was going on during Jesus' day. And what Jesus is saying here is, I have my own apostles, with my ones that I will give authority, I will give power, that will go in my name. Just like the rabbis do, just like the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of Israel has, I will have my own. And he names them apostles, sent ones. That's very important as we look at the book of Acts. So, are there apostles today? Yes and no. Not with the same authority. Do we have people sent out planting churches? Absolutely, but not like this. It ended with the twelve. And there's a huge difference between the two. The qualification here is singular, foundational for the role of the church. 
No one succeeding generations have these qualifications. They're looking for a man who saw Jesus be baptized, who walked with Jesus for three years, who saw him be crucified, go into the grave, rise from the grave. He will be the twelfth apostle. Finally, we see the selection take place as we close. Verse 23. And they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. That's hell. They cast lots for them, and a lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now, debate breaks out with this because some people think they were going too fast. They weren't following the lead of the Lord. Paul will come along in a few years from now, and he was supposed to be the twelfth apostle. Remember what I said earlier. How you interpret history is important. Is this something that's prescriptive or descriptive? Is this something that, that has to be done that is done for everyone at all times? Is it something we should copy that's prescriptive? Or is it descriptive just telling us what happened? The reason I bring this up is that some people say the apostles jumped the gun by choosing a replacement. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared to him, to James and to all the apostles, least of all me, untimely born. For I am the least of apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Was Paul a unique apostle of Jesus? Absolutely. Did he have the authority to write Scripture and do all those things? Absolutely. Did he have the same qualifications that Peter is saying right here? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. There's nothing in this narrative, if you, if you read this narrative, there's nothing in this narrative that portrays Matthias in a negative light. That's one of the things you have to do when you're dealing with history. There's nothing in this... It says they were obedient. They went to Jerusalem. They were in one mind, in one accord. They were, had the mood. They were in prayer. They're invoking Scripture. They're asking God to lead them. They're asking actually Jesus to show them, verse 2, of Acts 1, it says the apostles that Jesus chose in verse 2. And verse 24, same verb, same Hebrew verb. It says, you, Lord Jesus, you know the heart. Show us the one you have already chosen. So verse 2 and verse 24, it's Jesus. They're saying, show us, Jesus. You picked the 12. One went. Scripture says there has to be another one. So we're going to pray and we're going to ask you to show us who that is. These two people meet the qualifications. We'll lay them before you. We'll draw lots. Lots is something that Israel normally did a lot. Proverbs tells us, let the lot that is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. There was something that was common among the Israelites. They they would put these stones either in a bag or in a jar with the person's name on it. And then they would throw it out. Whatever name came out first would be the one that God had chosen. You can read it for yourself in Scripture. I don't have time to go through it. But it's, it's very well known in ancient Israel. Nothing in this really is negative. Everything is in a positive light. One thing you don't see is Matthias. Uh, let's see, his name means, I've written down somewhere. Um, Matthias means gift of God. And Barsabbas means son of the Sabbath. When they pick Matthias, you know what you don't see? You don't see the other guy taking his toys and going home. I never got chosen. You know what I mean? Oh, you picked him over me. You know, they were working together in unity. Like now we just want to take our toys and go home because we're not the one chosen. 
Matthias, both apostles, both these men, not apostles, both these men, were at the day of Pentecost filled with the Holy Spirit. He continued on with the apostles in unity and in prayer. So you see this whole situation, invoking of Scripture, the suitability, the prayer time together, and the lot being cast that the twelfth one will be Matthias. Now they're ready for the day of Pentecost to come. So let's walk away with a couple of things practical. And I'm going to ask the band to come up. And I've got two things for you to hear as a congregation. I deal with this myself. The band can come up and I have a question for you. For everybody else. Well, for them too. <laughs> you guys can listen. Are you waiting on God for something? Are you waiting on God for something? An answer to a question. A, a relationship, you know, an issue about relationships. Are you waiting on God to get you through a difficult time? What are you doing during that time? Remember, keep your eyes on Jesus. Be obedient to His Word. He's given us principles to follow as you see Peter declaring Scripture. Stay in prayer. Stay connected in worship and prayer together. Walk with each other during the time of waiting. Don't isolate. Get connected to the bride, the family of God. Jesus' bride, the family of God. And maybe you're here and you have not responded to Jesus' invitation. Jesus really did live, historically, a perfect life. Jesus really died on a cross to atone for your sins. Jesus really went into the grave three days and then rose victorious over sin, death, and hell. Jesus is really ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father who can intercede for you, who has forgiven your sin and calling upon you to respond to Him. So if you're a believer here and you're in isolation, gather with the saints of God. Don't do it alone. Wait on Him. Don't walk ahead of Him. Worship. Pray. Walk together. Be in Scripture. If you're not, and you're not a Christian, and you're here, respond to the invitation. Jesus loves you. He died for you. rose for you. As we respond, we're going to repent of sin whatever that may be, and trust Jesus Christ. Let's pray. And Father, thank You for this picture of deep community as the disciples and the apostles wait. They did not sit idly by, but waited in worship, walk, and Lord, waited on You. Lord, we pray that as Your people, we would wait and be actively waiting as we seek Your face as we worship together, as we wait on You, Lord, we want to hear Your voice, follow Your lead. Help us to respond in faith even now that we may go where You send us to be used for Your glory and honor, not in isolation, but in community together for Your kingdom comes, until Your kingdom comes. In Jesus' good name, Amen. Take my life. Will You respond in faith as we sing?